Welcome, this is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror. My name is Marshall Smith, and horror for me is a genre that is particularly productive, at least with my impressive co-host, in producing discussions about things like impossible situations and what is the least worst option available. And I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I love horror because it asks questions and often answers those questions about what is right and what is wrong. And sometimes we agree with the assessment that the movie lays out and sometimes we disagree. But in the case of this particular film, it really does the difficult job of, I think, not giving us an answer of what is right and what is wrong, and instead just laying out a lot of really complicated questions and having us do the heavy lifting of trying to decide where we think the moral referendum should lie. And that was a really fun exercise. And I don't know that we landed (laughs) at the end of it, but that's what horror does. Horror gives us a chance to to ask those really important questions. And I want to acknowledge that because I have historically been absolutely caustic, scorched earth policy as to films and particularly directors who are unwilling to take a position or, or make an argument or, or lay out a, a stance. And it did not bother me in this case. And I think that is a testament to the construction of the film as very intentionally unwilling to answer that question. It was not a matter of incompleteness or lack of thought or planning or some sort of vague artistic pretension about allowing for interpretation or whatever. It was, I'm creating a narrative that is unequal deliberately. That is for me exceptional. And the film that accomplished all of this and that we watched is the 2011 film Scalene. This is the third film by director Zach Parker. He co-wrote this with Brandon Owens, who co-wrote one of his earlier films. I think Quench, oddly enough. And Really? I should check that out. Uh, yes. And what were the year differences between those? In Exchange was 2006. That's Parker's first film. Quench is 2007, and this is 2011, so four years in between. Apparently a productive four years for our duo here. The tagline for Scalene is, the truth is just a point of view. I'm going to read a modified version of the synopsis on IMDb because I don't particularly like theirs. So let me put this together. A perceptual thriller told from three points of view revolving around traumatic incident with a woman college student, a man who is mentally disabled, and his mother. Laura, you found it on YouTube? I did. There you go. That's nice and easy. This is the third in our series of Zach Parker films, his third film as well. We will conclude that with 
his most recent film next week, which is Proxy. Our entire catalog of episodes is available free on our website, collectivenightmares.com. And you can find us, you can find our recent episodes on iTunes and Spotify, hopefully wherever you find podcasts. Uh, hopefully wherever you find podcasts, reach out to us via email. All, all our contact information is on our website or Instagram at Collective Nightmares. Spoilers this episode for Martyrs. Pretty big spoiler. It was just a mention here and there, but Martyrs is still our bar by which we measure modern horror for movies. So we encourage you to see that because we reference it regularly. Uh, we do also spoil his earlier films, Quench and In Exchange to some degree. And I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. As always, we dig right into the weeds with the film. So we encourage you to watch it before you listen and to watch it fairly recently. So it's, it's fresh in your mind. And with that, we will um, begin our pointed discussion of Scaly. Do you want to start or do you want me to? I'll say that I had a harder time going back and watching this film a second time than I expected because knowing what was going to happen, like knowing roughly what the plot outline was going to be, made it really difficult to immerse myself back in it. And I wasn't necessarily expecting that. So I I've had a very detached viewing of it this time, which was not what happened the first time around. And it was unfortunate. It just felt very, I was looking for where the surprises would have been instead of experiencing them. And I'm, I feel like that was unfortunate. I didn't hardly remember it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. How long ago was it? Three, three years? We were probably four. Maybe? It was twenty six. It was May of twenty sixteen, and I know that because you sent me the you sent me the audio thing of it, and I saw it in my Google Drive the other day. We had a recording where we talked about it in May of twenty sixteen. Really? And that yeah. exists somewhere? Yes, it's on our drive. It's in the shared drive. Oh no, kidding! All right, so four years later to the month. Yes. All right. I had no recollection of it to the point where I did not even re- remember Paige jerking off Jacob. <laughs> what did you think the movie was about? I had no, I just had a, a, I just had memory of a mood, I think. And I remember it being a film about multiple perspectives. I, I don't, I don't have anything more than that. I don't know. Four years is a long time, I guess, for some of us. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. It's interesting because that's how I feel about Proxy. I have a couple flashes of memories of Proxy and that's about it. But this film, I remembered the overall plot structure really well. And so I remember the first time around being thrown off by the fact that there was so much time shifting that that was, it was too confusing. And the, the story kept evolving differently in my assessment of what was going on, kept changing over the course of the film. And this time I just, I didn't feel it because I knew what was going to happen. So it was too bad. I still really like the film. So you remembered it that clearly? I remembered the actual story. I didn't remember what came in what order. Okay. But there were no surprises because from the second the movie started, I remembered how things were going to play out. And that was unfortunate. But I do like the film still. I just, I have to almost talk about what I know I like about it rather than experiencing it in the moment right now, which is too bad. That is too bad. Maybe I should ask you since you didn't have that same experience what did you feel i guess i felt like i did get some of the payoff still of being led down the path i guess i had some vague sort of like deja vu notion and 
I did remember once I saw the actors, I was like, oh yeah, this is so-and-so or, or I do kind of remember how this progresses, but I didn't, I really didn't remember the, the final setup until it was actually happening. I still enjoyed the film. I think I was able to pull some good stuff out of it. I, I hesitate to say more because I don't, I think our first conversation was probably pretty solid. It strikes me as, oh, where do I, where do we even want to begin? I know where I would begin, which is how great it is to have a film that, in my opinion at least, gave us so many perspectives on what was happening over the course of the film. And, and I think the point, to me, the point of the film was the shifting perspectives. And it was not a referendum so much on who was correct. I was looking for it so much this time. That's what I was, that's what I had my eyes peeled for was, is the film trying to tell us which of these narratives is the right one? Is there clearly a, a protagonist really in this film? And I didn't think there was. And I actually liked that. I think that's a unique setup. It, maybe that's going against some of what we've said on the show, because often we're saying we want there to be a referendum and we want you to come down on, you know, what side of morality is correct. But I think it pulled out a very sticky situation and showed us, if anything, maybe the referendum would be, there are multiple competing perspectives of whatever scenario you're in. And until you have all the information, it's really difficult to parse through that. You don't think it was a referendum on well-meaning white upper-middle-class sociologists interfering in lives <laughs> and problems that they have no real business doing. <laughs> I thought it was great and hilarious that she was a sociology major, <laughs> which was immediately conflated with social work. <laughs> which, those of you listening as sociologists, I would imagine, Laura, you can attest to this, it's like the bane of our lives that people think being a sociologist is somehow the same or very related to being a social worker and they aren't. I have tremendous respect for social workers, but it's just not the same thing. I suppose there are undergrads who go into sociology and that can lead to social work, but I thought that was, uh, that was hilarious. Um, no, I agree. I, I think what we've said is that I don't know. I don't know what we've said, but what I do think this movie gives us opportunity to clarify if it wasn't is that whatever you're going to do, pick it and do it. And so in this film, if you're going to create a film with the objective of portraying multiple perspectives on a situation where there is no real great answer or no solid answer or no good answer, do that and, and hammer it. And I agree with you, Laura, or, and maybe just a different way of saying the same thing. There are very few films where the film is very deliberately leaving the resolution open-ended. And like you said, there's not necessarily a good person and a bad person, or no one really moves from, from the, in their character arc is like, oh, they, they were the good person and they fell from grace, or they were the terrible person and they transcended to become the, the savior or whatever. It was a, a film that was where, where yes, the, uh, the narratives were balanced in such a way that as viewers, we don't have, I feel like I'm just saying what you said in, in different ways. Yeah, as viewers were left without enough information to cast anyone as hero or villain. And that's, yeah, I, we talked about this with something recently, 
because the only other film I can think of that was that's like this, which is is somewhat different, but but I keep coming back to where the viewers very intentionally left without the ability to resolve which was the real reality or which was the who was in the right, and that is Twelve Monkeys. But I can't remember which episode that was that we. Do you? I remember that, but I don't know. I don't. Darn. <laughs> do we want to just dive into that, or? I guess we can just dive into that. Yeah, I think so. I think we started the film in much the same place that we ended it, in a way. I'm just talking through this now, so I'm not sure if I'm settled on my opinion here. But we started the film, I thought, feeling like Paige clearly was in the right. Something happened. We don't really know what it is, but it it appears as though Paige was victimized somehow. The mother, I feel really badly for because because I understand her pleas and her her plea of you know my son would never do this I believe her that she feels that way regardless of what that says about her son we don't know her son yet at all at the beginning of the film but I felt like those two characters both had very understandable grievances and at the end of the film I felt similarly in that both of those two characters had very understandable grievances and certainly being a parent I was not a parent of an old enough child when we watched this last time around to probably fully understand how you might get angry in certain moments with a child who's particularly trying to be difficult and that sort of thing. There's one particular time recently when Noah and I were taking the kayak out and we were walking back and I I got into a fight with a six-year-old, a verbal argument with a six-year-old, and I was at the level of a six-year-old. And I don't do that generally, but I could lay out the series of things that had happened that day and why I was apparently in a cruddy mood. And when he started just like picking at me, trying to be a problem, I just sort of verbally lost it a little. And I remember him crying and yelling at me something along the lines of, but you're, you're making me sad or I don't, you're making me feel bad or something. And I yelled back, well, maybe I don't care. And we were out in public and it wasn't, I mean, it was nothing horrible. It was like, I told him, I I remember why the argument started because he had brought some candy with him out on the kayak. And when we were coming back, I told him he couldn't have it because he would have to reach in with his muddy hands that had been in the muddy lake water. And I wanted him to go home and wash his hands first. And so he was like purposefully trying to like get the candy anyway, and then just causing other troubles. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He was just being a six-year-old. But what was noticeable in me is that I fell to the level of a six-year-old and spent the entire rest of the day trying to process that in my own head and then reconcile with him around it and talk through what had happened and, you know, trying to come back in a much more mature way of how I would like to have dealt with the argument. But what I did in the moment when he said he was sad and was crying, granted, he was crying about not getting candy or something. I yelled at him, maybe I don't care. And I walked past a a mom right in that moment and she was kind of coming toward me on the path and she looked over and just like burst into laughter when she heard me yell at him, (laughs) which was nice in a camaraderie sort of way and made me feel like, okay, I'm not a total monster. Like this is a common experience that sometimes you just lose it a little bit in a moment and you're not the best version of who you'd like to be. And so, and I'm not saying that to absolve the bruises that were found on this boy or anything like that, but understanding that when you see brief snippets of somebody's interaction, you might be getting the worst parts of those snippets when you have a little bit of information to draw on. You know, when we saw the whole scene with the coffee getting spilled and that ridiculous story about the cow, when we saw it at the beginning from the mother's perspective, 
it felt very different than when we saw it from Paige's perspective. And so I don't know. I think that that shifting perspective I felt like was a real strong suit of the film. And I, I haven't seen a lot of films that purposely tried to do that. I think Martyrs did it back to our gold standard. Martyrs did it really well. I don't know that that was the core of what they were trying to accomplish. In, in this film, it felt like it was. Yes, agreed. So I'm sorry, the other person laughed when you said, maybe I don't care. Yeah, she just looked at me and burst into laughter like, yeah, I've been there. And, <laughs> and what bothered me was really that I'm having a sniffy, I'm having a sniffy argument with a six-year-old like another six-year-old, you know? <laughs> it's horrible, but every once in a while it happens. I would have to imagine so, yes. And so I think maybe just to lay out Sometimes I do like to step backward and just to lay out. So what we have is we have a mother who has dealt with, what's mom's name? Janice. Janice has dealt with Jacob for 15 something years of him being silent and in whatever sort of situation he's in. And at some points, yes, loses it and is very frustrated with him and hires the caretaker who is Paige, who comes in and that alleviates some of the pressure on mom to where she can actually go on a date, a couple of dates with Charles. Charles. And, but as a result, Paige gets close enough with Jacob that she starts to see here and there some of the bruises. And we have the coffee bruises explained. That's the, the grip on the arm when... Janice moves him to the sink to be able to put cold water on his hand. And I think something else, but we didn't ever get an explanation for the bruises under the, the side, the rib cage, right? But, no, but, I don't think we did. Okay. So we have one, one set of injuries that we have a full explanation for, and we can extrapolate that to the others, but we don't know that. And, and then, so Paige sees this and talks to mom and mom seems sort of dismissive of it. And we understand that because she says, I've been doing this for however many years this happens. It's, it sucks, but she's come to grips with that or resolved it. And eventually Paige decides that the best way to resolve the situation is to frame Jacob for a sexual assault so that he will be removed from mom. Mom but she does that based on, well, let's see. What is our path of empathy? We open with mom. We open with looking at her eyes. So we're seeing it from mom's perspective. She goes into the house. She attacks Paige. And then we're, we're looped back. We're looped backwards and backwards and backwards, right? Chronologically, we jump back and then we jump back and then we jump back. All the way until, when do we start moving forward again? I think... You notice that. And now I'm trying to recall. I think we start moving forward again when, when Paige gets the flyer. Maybe. It may be after that. Well, because once Paige gets the flyer, then she goes to the house and then things start to propel forward again. We move backwards, though, again, after knowing that Paige is the caregiver, because then we move back to when Charles... We move back to when Charles was leaving the house. Mm. Okay. So we have this... God, I should have made paid more attention to which well, suffice to say we jump around chronologically and over the course of the film we come to empathize with Paige as much as we really come to empathize with mom 
And ultimately we end up in this situation where mom was sometimes bruising Jacob, but she was generally trying to care for him as best she was, as she could. Paige was thought that Jacob was being so, some, somehow abused. And so by framing him, he would be taken away. He would be separated from mom and be put in some sort of supervised care, which in the system, in the state system for the government system. And then Paige and mom fight it out. Mom ends up killed. Paige ends up okay. And Jacob ends up in custody or in some sort of treatment, mental hospital situation. And we end the film with mom in the same position of sitting outside the house, deciding to go in to attack Paige. So really the entire film is us being led through all of the context and lead up in history that results in mom charging into Paige's house to enact vengeance for framing her kid. But in the meantime, so that's the bookend, but in the meantime, we are led through to understand that Paige did this thing that resulted in mom, resulted in uh, Janice attacking her because she was trying to protect or thought she was trying to intervene to protect Jacob, who is the developmentally disabled. And so we have great empathy for Paige. Who, do we have any, the only other thing I'd like to throw into that. So those two folks are really evenly matched. I'm, I promise I'll get some more here. Something else that I did notice was I think the only time that we are presented with point of view camera work is from the perspective of Jacob which I find interesting. And I guess the point where I'm going with all of this is, so according to uh, Wikipedia, a scalene triangle has all of its sides different lengths. Equivalently, it has all angles of different measure. In contrast to an equilateral, where all sides are the same, or an isosceles, or two of the sides are the same. So my question is, are we to understand that Paige, Jacob, and Janice are the three sides of the triangle? And we would then have what? We would have Paige, because she's the survivor, be like the longest side, I guess. Jacob would be the shortest, and mom would be the middle. And if we accept all that, and you can, I'll turn this over to you to dispute that if you want to. But if we accept all that, it is very interesting to me that we end up having what we started saying, pretty much equivalent empathy for both Paige and Janice when the structure or, or when the title of the film is based on a shape that is decidedly unequal. I love what you're throwing out there. And I was taking that as when I thought about scaling triangles and I thought about, yes, the sort of inequality of the different sides of the triangle, I was thinking about inequality in terms of perspective. So nobody, nobody's seeing eye to eye. Nobody has the same view of what's happening. But the more I hear you talk, honestly, the more I'm starting to lean toward wanting to say that we're supposed to be on Janice's side. And I don't know if we are. I had a, just had a really hard time viewing this film outside the perspective of my first time viewing it. And I wish that was not the case, but it just was. I remembered too much to have it be new. And so I remember, at least I think I remember my first experience of the film being, yes, that the primary focus was these differing perspectives and how interestingly that was presented over the evolution of the film and how my, you know, my allegiance was shifting 
such that eventually I remember feeling exhausted by the end of it because I was so tired of rewriting the entire narrative based on a new scene. I mean, I, I distinctly remember from the last time we saw it when they re-show the scene where Charles storms out of the house after the coffee and Paige comes into the house early and she sees mom and Jacob in what looks to be a very problematic situation. I distinctly remember thinking at that moment, oh, wait a second, I'm shifting over to Paige's viewpoint here. I might be. And the more I hear you talk, the more I want to say we were supposed to be on Janice's kind of side, if there's a side throughout, like a triangle side, right? Ultimately, I suppose we're supposed to be on Jacob's side. We're supposed to want what's good for Jacob. But since Jacob can't tell us and can't communicate between, between Paige and Janice, I wonder if we're supposed to be on Janice's side. Because it, it just hearing it come out of your mouth, it sounds ridiculous. What Paige did sounds absolutely ridiculous. For several reasons. I mean, including logistically, that just sounds ridiculous. But, okay, let me start over here. From a very practical sense, she did not cause less harm to befall Jacob. And she may have thought that, most likely, most likely she didn't. I mean, gosh, unless, I don't know. I can't Which, imagine being in whatever sort of institution you get put in with no one who loves him or cares for him around is going to be a better situation for him, but she's naive and she thinks that's right. And she thinks she can solve the world's problems before she goes off to grad school next year. I, the more I hear you describe the story, the more I want to side with Janice because I think that Jacob very likely did not end up in a, a better situation after this because of Paige's actions. If you even take out the sexual assault part, the fact that she had to scratch him down his chest, all these things that he just, we know he, I guess we don't know about the sexual assault. We don't know what his experience of any of this was, but we were told explicitly that he doesn't like to be touched. And so I think we can take from that, that what she did was really invasive in a lot of ways, especially, I mean, the scratching is just something he wouldn't be able to handle if he couldn't handle someone touching him. So she hurt him in the immediate sense in that way. Then she sends him off to this institution where her great ideals say that he's going to be better off. And like I said, she's going to go on to grad school soon. She's not planning on making Jacob her entire life the way Janice has. And so the thought that she could solve something so quickly and then trot off to grad school just makes me want to feel like, were we supposed to be on Janice's side? I might be changing my mind. Just like I said, in hearing the narrative come out of your mouth, it's, it's pulling me that direction. Well, I mean, that strikes me as really interesting too, because I had, I'm sitting here thinking, I was caught up in, oh my God, this is so painfully awkward to watch. But I don't think I ever really said to myself, oh my God, what she's doing is horrible. I was sort of like, okay, I can kind of understand what she's doing. <laughs> which is, which like you said, now that we're just saying it, when you put it abstractly, it's it's totally absurd and abusive. And it's in order to get him out of a situation where she assumes abuse is happening, she is going to abuse him to accomplish that is is not a, such a great position or argument. But I do think it speaks to the power of the film that it seems like both of us were by that point in a position of being very understanding of what Paige was trying to do, which is, like you said, now it's like, you know, thinking back on it, it's like, oh no, it's kind of, it's terrible. Like, can we just clarify that? What was wrong with her calling adult protective services? What was wrong with it? Yeah. 
Like what, what happened? Why, why couldn't she just do that? Why did she need to? I thought that the implication from the phone call was that she didn't have enough proof because okay. the questions that the woman on the phone was asking were, has anyone else seen this? And oh, yes. Know, the part okay. about not wanting to give her name actually feels a bit convoluted because you're tying yourself to this story a whole lot more if you go through this entirely fabricated rape story and all of that. But yeah, but okay, no, that's, that's perfect. And that, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. So to me, then the film is probably why what I remember about liking it so much the first time is that for us as sociologists, for other people also, one of the great questions of, maybe this is one of our world's most interesting questions, is how much intersubjectivity can we accomplish? Meaning at a philosophical limit, it was the sophists, right, who argued that there is no way for me to ever fully confirm my reality matches that of another person. And therefore, there's some argument that we all just live in our own reality and we can like take and run with that. And so for sociologists, intersubjectivity is accomplished, I guess for anybody, intersubjectivity is accomplished when as much as we can, presumably through language, we can agree that what we are experiencing, what we as people are experiencing as reality has enough overlap that we can treat it as true. This is like the origin of the scientific method and yada, yada, yada. But I also remember that from Zimmel, who's an old white man sociologist, but one of his key contributions was that the most significant change in interaction dynamics is between a dyad and a triad. And that is with the introduction of a third person. And so in this case, Paige is the introduction of the, of the third person. And we have three people with unequal power and unequal perspective to be able to negotiate that inner subjectivity. And I suppose if you have, if you were to have Jacob, okay, so what does that say? So if, if Paige and Janice Assuming that Jacob does not have sufficient power because of his disability and his lack of communication, if we had Janice and Paige having equal power to negotiate what the reality is with regard to Jacob, well, one of them wouldn't have ended up dead, <laughs> at least by the rules of horror film. I, I've shifted from philosophical reality to scaling diegetic reality. So I think that's... I think that's where we, we go to. And then the, then for me, the comment, the question would be like you're saying, or of, of maybe we are supposed to be on Janice's side, which would make Paige the privileged or the long or the most powerful person with regard to power in the sense of imposing her version of reality on the situation. And Maybe it is an indictment of well-meaning upper-middle-class sociologists. <laughs> uh. I love everything you're saying. The more you talk, too, the more I do almost want to go back to that and say, maybe it is. Because we all come, it, the whole thing comes full circle when we understand, basically, Janice is explained. We have come to understand why Janice goes in to this house and 
even though at the very beginning, I, I think we see her as the assailant, right? The one who's, who's in the wrong. She's going into this girl's house and attacking her and accusing her of whatever's happening with her kid. And we think that, we think that Janice is the victim. And very slowly over the course of the film, what, what's revealed to us is that here are all of these things that would explain. So our empathy is really turned, I think, at the beginning we're against, we don't have empathy for Janice. And at the end, we really do have empathy for Janice. I think at the beginning, beginning, we have empathy for Janice. Then we switch. Oh. Like I said, I didn't, from what I recall last time, and I, I wish I didn't have to draw on that from years ago, but as far as my, my emotional experience of it, I often, I do. I remember shifting to Paige when Paige walked in when Charles was leaving with the coffee. I remember that being really emotionally impactful in terms of starting to feel like maybe Paige was right, I guess, that, that there was a lot more to Janice's relationship than we had been able to see so far. I thought up until that point, Basically, yes. Yeah, we had empathy for Janice. I mean, the first scene is terrible when her son's getting pulled away from her. And even though at that point, I think he did it, I still feel terrible for Janice. And Janice's negotiations with Charles are sad. Oh, totally. But it's certainly, if anything, I feel like I'm on Janice's side against Charles. I mean, I can understand Charles's I could probably understand Charles's experience as well. And I think if we saw more of the film, we might understand why he wanted to leave or, you know, she did some things. They did a good job of making her character seem unhealthy in that relationship with Charles. They never really dove into it, but there was a, I don't know, neediness, obsession, almost element of what was going on with that, that looked to be trouble that we didn't get much deeper than just that cursory understanding of it. So I would, I would be possibly inclined to implicate Janice more in that than I was aware. But even so, her conversations about her son, I was very empathetic with Janice for the first large chunk of the film. But I think it switched when I was confused when he had that bruise. Right. But right. I think it switched when I saw the scene where Charles was leaving and, and Paige was coming into the house. Because then to me, I started to wonder where that first bruise came from. So what you, what I hear you saying is that our, I am inclined to agree with you, but our trajectory of empathy as viewers is we are with Janice and then we are presented where we are questioning, questioning ambivalent or uh, questioning or maybe against Janice. And then we come back to having empathy for her. And with Paige, we have empathy for her, right? We see her as the victim. I guess, right. I guess you're right from the beginning. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting in that little narrative I just gave you that was so nicely laid out there. The first scene of the film, which opens with Janice definitely being the perpetrator. Yeah. And so That's I suppose you're right. At first, we're on Paige's side against Janice. But then I think that shifted. Are we ever Wait. against? Well, we're against. Are, we're never, are we ever really against Paige? Like we just talked about in the abstract, when we're, when we're saying it, it's like, yeah, we're against Paige. But my experience of the movie was not, I'm against Paige. I was like, God, this sucks. But I guess I understand what she's trying to do. I agree with you. And that's, that's why I, I led with the intro that I did that, oh, it was really interesting to see a film where we didn't really have a referendum on who was right and who was wrong. We just had these unequal narratives being presented. 
Although the more I heard the narrative come out of your mouth, the more I wanted to say, were you blind, Laura? Because obviously, obviously, Paige is in the wrong. I mean, look at what happened here. I, so I don't know. I don't either, but I do think that we have to go back to our like symbolic system of horror movies, which is, well, except that. I was just going to say that we have to look at who died, right? We have right. to jump into who died. And but no, that wasn't a referendum on Janice. No, but no, it wasn't. It, it just wasn't. And uh, we should explain that. I feel like we should explain that. So typically what we would look for in this is people who die are very often especially in slasher films, it is symbolic of them having been some sort of failure or them being somehow unacceptable. This is sin is death, or if it's, uh, it could be a failure of an institution, if it's a cop or a teacher ends up killed or whatnot. So in this situation, we're saying that we can't really apply that to Janice because it is not a referendum on her. It's not her having done something wrong. And so the question, I guess, for me is, how do we know that? Let me just take one step back on what you just said and say that, right, horror films, and we could also discuss this isn't exactly a horror film. However, horror films are often about morality and almost always about morality. And when you have a film that's about morality, when you have a survivor at the end, very often you as the audience are placed in the position of wanting the survivor to survive against whoever it is that, is killed or you know if you have some collateral deaths throughout the film then those tend to be the more deserving deaths right the survivor is the one that that gets held up as as who you would most want to empathize with and who you would most identify with and what good most represents because very often they're good versus evil and so in this film when someone in a horror film when someone dies it very often means i would say that either that they were being punished for some sort of sin as you said or a slightly maybe lower bar for that would just be that they were allowed to be collateral damage because they're what our society sees as not the optimum version of a person. So it was okay to get rid of them. That can be sort of overlooked as long as our protagonist makes it. And I don't think Janice falls into either of those categories, like you said. But what's really interesting is that I also didn't feel that we as an audience were clearly on Janice's side. You can experience something painful in a horror film death maybe that's it death is very often triumph or overlooked and those are probably the two scenarios i was just laying out if if death is triumph then good hopefully survived against evil and that person who gets killed is being marked as evil if it's overlooked if it's just oh we don't need to pay attention to that that doesn't matter so much compared to our protagonist that's one thing but in this case i don't think that i didn't feel I don't know how to say that. I didn't feel that it was either a horrible tragedy when Janice died, nor did I feel that it was meant to be some sort of victory. And that's strange. Totally. Does it... Quick note, I also have in my notes, we should talk about whether or not this is actually a horror film. So I'm glad you mentioned that. (laughs) Wait, what's the question on the table? What is Janice's death supposed to be... I don't think it was a referendum on Janice. I don't think it means either that Janice was bad or even that it means that Janice didn't matter. I think those are the two things we often bump up against in horror films with a death. And I don't think this was either one of those. 
but strangely, I also didn't feel like it was an, an emotional experience that we were supposed to go through so that we would be on Janice's side. You know, sometimes the protagonist can die or someone that you're really supposed to see as good can die. And then it's often an indictment of a system or it's an indictment of whatever evil is that you experience watching this horrible thing happen. Maybe I would say that of martyrs, right? Our main character dies. That doesn't mean it's an indictment of her. It's right. we're meant to experience I was thinking the same thing. Sorry, go ahead. We're meant to feel pain from her death. And that pain is useful because that, again, that tells us what good is because we're feeling pain. Well, we know Janice matters because the film starts and ends with her and particularly like a close-up shot of her eye. So we are looking through her perspective. I think if anything, the stronger argument is that the indictment is Paige. Paige is the one being indicted. And as an academic and a, and a person who is directly associated with the system or, or someone who aspires to be connected to the system, maybe it is as much a, a situation of, of her being indicted. Although I think the, or the, the next level, why I think this film stands out as extraordinary is because it's not a simplistic, she's good, she's evil, they duke it out and evil wins and that's the horror which would be Paige wins, she's evil, and that's the horror. And Janice is good, and she loses, and that's the tragedy. It is a very, like, nuanced and difficult, nigh intractable problem of what do you do with, with someone who there really aren't any great choices, which would be what do you do with uh, Jacob? I agree with everything you've said. And so I say this not to not to poo poo what you just said, but I can't help but express the thought that just came to my head. Oh, you totally sexually assault them and get them locked away in an institution. because It's totally the right thing to do, obviously. No, why are we treating this as a possibly reasonable thing? And I'm doing it too. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Something about the film is I don't want to say making, but I guess, right? It's, it's encouraging us to do that because there's no world in which that's a reasonable thing to do. There's not. But I feel compelled to say that this has come up occasionally on the podcast, but I feel like it's relevant again, which is that I have an older brother who is schizophrenic. He's chronically mentally ill. And in the past however many years, he has come to be targeted as a mark by people who he encounters, I don't know, wherever, who see him as someone who, who can be exploited. And so it's people who are homeless, who, who he has an apartment through Section 8 that, you know, we have worked and coordinated to get him to have. So they will squat in his apartment or they'll use it as a place to shoot up drugs. And some of these people have been very abusive of my brother. And my brother is, he, he got very sick, very young, particularly for a schizophrenic, and it is very socially isolated. And so he has been unwilling to, unwilling and or unable to establish boundaries with these people. And he has also been unable or, or unwilling to cooperate with police barring very extreme circumstances. At some point, one of these women who was abusing him attacked him with a knife and he finally called cops and and pressed charges. 
I think he pressed charges. He might not have. He might have just called the cops and had them arrest her temporarily or, or remove her from the apartment. But the point being that for me and for my parents, standing by and watching him be abused and not being able to intervene because ultimately as an adult, he's not exactly in Jacob's situation, but if he is unwilling to, and and I mean, I think this is true. I'm sure this is true of all kinds of people in bad situations. If he is unwilling to press charges or cooperate with police or advocate for himself or, or even just turn over his advocacy to someone else who will do it for him, there really isn't a lot you can do. There just isn't. And there have been times when I have contemplated pretty ridiculous strategies for intervening. He's been evicted twice. The last time he was off meds and he he ended up in a standoff with Denver uh, SWAT because he was psychotic and had barricaded himself in his apartment and there was cause to believe he had weapons and yada, yada, yada. But he served time. He, he's out. He's on probation. He is back in a different apartment. And within the last couple of weeks, I went over there to deliver packages to him. And I came to discover that there were people in the apartment. And I lost my shit. <laughs> because for me, the people in his apartment impose a very serious threat that he could be violated on probation or he could be being abused again, or he could be evicted. And at this point he is on his, he shouldn't even be in the apartment. He is, it was sheer luck that he got in. He basically is out of options, particularly if he gets in trouble in this apartment. And I told him, I will call the cops and report you for whatever it was. I mean, I was, I, and I was yelling at the people inside, you are trespassing. I will call the cops mostly because I assume that, and I think rightfully that there are probably people who don't want to interact with the cops for various reasons, whether they're drug users or whatever. And my brother thought that I was saying I would call the cops to have him committed for psychiatric evaluation, which I wasn't, but honestly I would, if that would keep him with an apartment as an option. So he isn't actually homeless on, on the streets. I would do that. Now, would that be, so I guess what I'm saying is that I feel like I have a very strong connection to, is that, you know, jerking him off in a, in when it's unwanted? I shouldn't even say it that way. Is that the same as assaulting him and setting it up such that he could be committed? No, but it would be a major traumatic disruption to his life that I have very absolutely been willing to engage in because for me, it would be the greater good of keeping him with a place to live. And if he had to be committed and be put in psych war, uh, you know, the law enforcement psych ward for evaluation, and that would cause whatever problems or and trauma for him, they are not nice places to be. But if that would keep him from being evicted from the apartment, I would do it in a second. So for me in the, in the film, I felt a very, I, I mean, I still, I'm very conflicted because I am, I would like to think I'm one of the last people to ever to minimize some sort of sexual assault. 
And I, so I certainly don't want to do that with what Paige did to him. And I think there's, even for me, who I, I resist this strongly, there's temptation for me, even how I misspoke earlier, to, to dismiss that as not that bad. Okay, she, she I, I'm very conflicted about it, is what I'll say, of what the actual experience was. She clearly got no joy out of it. It was very upsetting for her. I don't know if that changes anything, but it's worth pointing out that the film, I think, took pains to establish that. And she was doing it with really good intentions. I have also called adult, adult protective services, and they basically told me the same thing, that unless he is able and willing, I mean, my brother, well, I don't, I guess, I don't know with him if you can split between able or willing, but he was, he was unable to, he, he would not cooperate with them. And so, I mean, I think this is a really fundamental question of what are you to do in that situation? Because there really don't, there are no good choices or there's sort of least bad choices. It's terrible that mom is killed. I understand mom's rage. I guess, I don't know what I'm trying to get out of all that, other than maybe turn this podcast into a therapy session for myself, but, uh, um, which is not really what I started out trying to do. But uh, I, I just, I think that's probably, for me anyway, that's, that's an additional compelling component of the film of people who are, who are very well-meaning and invested in a system and hoping to accomplish something where they're able to help people who are in help people who can't help themselves and are in abusive situations. Drawing those lines is, is really difficult and problematic. And I think it's a testament to the film that Parker was able to demonstrate that to us, not just abstractly, but emotionally as well. Okay. I think I feel like I finally got to a point there. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate you bearing with me. (laughs) Laura. So I, I that a lot of that was fascinating, and I want to throw out three possible ways that we can go with that, and you can pick which of these three seem most interesting to you. First, we've been talking lately about some of the most interesting questions in the world that can be addressed by horror films, and one of them I know was, do good intentions matter in doing evil? Right. And this film very much hits on that question. Interestingly, I don't think it provides an answer. I don't think it really provides any answers, which often is something I would agree with. And you would tend to have trouble with Marshall. Although I have to say in, in my second experience of the film this time around, I was hoping for some of those answers. I was hoping there were going to be, I was hoping there would be some kind of referendum and left almost a little disappointed that there wasn't. And yet I think that's also a strength of the film. So I don't know, but that's a big question that gets thrown out by this film for sure. I think the film goes through pains to show us, like you said, that Paige did not enjoy any of this, that she was doing this as what she felt to be a last resort. And she was very much doing it for Jacob. She had his best interests at heart. Now we can look at what actually happened both in terms of the incident itself, which is more horrific. I mean, I had a similar experience to you, Marshall, that it's more horrific than I experienced it as. And interestingly, I think the, the rape portion of that experience was possibly not as difficult for me as the part where she scrapes him with her nails. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were, they were, it was all bad. But anyway, we're, we're very much led through this 
really awful experience, but clearly with the perspective that she wasn't enjoying any of it. And I mean, even to go so far as to show us her getting her rape test done at the police station and that sort of thing. So, so I just want to highlight that. That's an interesting question that this film lays out is, does it matter though? Does that make any difference in terms of what she did? If, if he went through a horrific experience and if in the end he was potentially worse off than he started, does it matter that she like had these great ideals because ultimately she was a college kid who didn't really know what she was talking about. And that's, I guess, another point that I wanted to lay out and to juxtapose with your story is that you're speaking from the perspective of having grown up with your brother your whole life, having a, a very nuanced understanding of what his situation is. And this film presents someone who may have felt that way, may have felt like she understood what was going on or she clearly knew, but really had very, very minimal interactions with Jacob and his family. So to have decided what he needs could certainly be problematized in her case in a way that isn't exactly reflective of what you've experienced because you have a much, much deeper understanding of what was going on. And the third thing I'll throw out there was actually the filming and the presentation of the assault, because we have talked about that extensively when we've talked about rape revenge films and we've this, I will say that I, I suffer from some of the same bias looking at this from the perspective of like, oh, well, he's a man, he's, she's really pretty, she's about his age, I don't know, did he like it, did he not? He got sick really when he was 12, he may never have had another sexual interaction. Yeah, and there was that scene at the beginning, not the beginning, but earlier on in the film where... He I touches her, he gropes her. When it, was it him fantasizing about her is what I'm picturing. Oh, and he does grope her, twice. Yeah. And I think, I think that was him fantasizing about having sex with her. I think, right? It was a little unclear, no, but I it, think it was. It, it is, because that's what I was saying before. We only ever see point of view from, for him. But I think it does make sense to anyway discuss the presentation of that. And, and even with all of these caveats, I mean, if we're going to hold this to the same standard that we would if it was a woman, I think with plenty of caveats, oh, maybe she would have liked it. Maybe she... He, he was attractive. It would have been fine. I mean, Jacob clearly didn't consent. And I mean, I would say from what we experienced and what we viewed in that scene, I think he was either really uncomfortable and really disliked it or maybe tolerated it. We were given no indication basically really of what he was experiencing. And we certainly were not given any indication that he consented or wanted this in some way. So I think we do still need to discuss how that was laid out and, and where the audience is placed empathy wise and, and all of that. So anyway, those are my three, three thoughts that what you were just talking about there raised. I don't know which of those you want to jump into. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Those three thoughts are awesome. <laughs> That's why I love doing the podcast with you, Laura. I had so much going on in my head and also try to listen to you. I got to file through and see what I wanted to say. First, I want to say that I appreciate you giving me the benefit of the doubt. I actually don't know if that's totally deserved. I'm pretty estranged from my brother. Again, I don't want to turn this into my therapy session, but for the sake of the argument or for the sake of the clarity, or probably for my own sake, he really started getting sick when I was like 10, 11 he was in and out of hospitals. We don't have a lot of contact. Mostly I have contact with him when he needs something or when he's in crisis. And the other day, I don't know who those people were. I never saw them. And quite frankly, and I told him this, I don't care who they are. You just said you've lost your sort of privileges. 
or your any benefit of the doubt, not the least of which is he was lying about them being there at all. And so I don't necessarily feel like I have a whole lot of sense of what goes on with my brother. I just, I definitely in this instance and often with my brother shift into sort of a panic survival mode of we have to keep you from being homeless because if you are homeless, you will end up in prison or dead. And so that was how I, I was reacting. And then as far as, what was your next point? Do intentions matter if oh, you're yeah. doing evil, want to define evil, but does it matter that she, she was doing good? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's such a, uh, I mean, I'm glad you said that. I was, if you, if I sort of, uh, flipped my attention there it was because I wanted to add that to I'm starting to put try to put together a list in order to not be hypocritical I should emphasize that at least throughout grad school and generally I've very much been on the side of I don't care about your intentions and mostly that's what I'm arguing against proselytizing and like Judeo-Christian <laughs> manifest destiny of like yeah your intentions were all well and good meanwhile you like decimated the indigenous populations of most of the world <laughs> So I really don't give a fuck what your intentions are. And in order to have a little bit of a sociology moment, I think we should say that Foucault carries that so far as to say he doesn't even really care what truth is. It's how truth is used and what the results of it are. So your truth may be dead on accurate in terms of some sort of empirical standard, but if producing that truth results in whatever terrible consequences even that sort of quote-unquote quest for truth really doesn't matter. Just to throw out that there are pieces of that. And so I, I feel like I should apply that same standard here of her intentions may well be good. And I think it is really interesting that the film sets up, sets her up as trying to do the right thing. She really does. She talks to Ma, I think, twice. She calls Adult Protective Services. She... Uh, she, I think we have that scene where she's like really thinking about what is it she's going to do. So, so she takes these steps that I think is what we tell people to do. You should talk to the person, make sure they're aware. And she asks, she tries to ask Jacob, does mom hurt you? Is this something that happens? So she does like everything that we, we would expect to, to exonerate her or, or explain her as much as possible. And so then the question, I guess, is, is the story just a tragedy of a well-meaning uh, bad situation where your intentions really don't matter? Because on the flip side of that, mom's intentions are also to take care of him, right? But, but does he really have, I don't know, does he have really have great quality of life with, with mom either? Is she guilty of anything? She's guilty of, she's guilty of bruising him sometimes or, or however that's happening, he suffers injuries. None of them seem to be permanent or really uh, severe in the sense of long-term. Go ahead. It raises please. the question of whether an institution would be preferable. Which, which we can't answer from the film because we don't ever see any indication of the institution. Although we do see him get dragged away. We do. And we also immediately after, right, we do see him in the like white padded room, which... I don't know if that's a whole lot different than mom's house. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, I would challenge that, but I, I'm not going to say the film challenges it. I'm not, I'm not making the argument that the film was making this argument, but I think I personally am going to make this argument that 
it seems like mom's house is a heck of a lot better than what he's going to get there. She cares for him. I picture the scene where he's, where Charles was over. I, no, no, no. It was uh, Paige when Paige first came over and he's watching TV and he wants the remote and then he wants his soup and then he puts the soup down and then he wants the soup back. And mom's really trying to be very, pay a lot of attention to his needs and mom's not perfect. And mom snaps at him sometimes. And in some ways, understandably, when you think about the fact that she gave up apparently the last, uh, what, who knows? I mean, the entire time of actually raising him is, it's difficult. You devote your life in a lot of ways to raising this child. And then when he's getting to the point where he would start to be more independent, he reverts to what he would have been at a much, much younger age and presumably is going to be like this forever as we know from, or we glean, I guess, from her discussions with Charles. And she is not just hanging in there out of obligation. She wants to be there and she wants to take care of him. And she explicitly says to Charles, right, I'm not, well, I'm going to be there as long as he needs me. And no, he's my son. I want him there. I want to do this for him. So I think she's probably weathering it. I'm going to say again, she's, she's a fallible person, but she's probably weathering it about as well as anyone would, especially anyone who doesn't have any help and, you know, is looking for a, a caregiver so that she can have a little bit of time out of the house and away from this situation. That's pretty normal. It's pretty normal to snap sometimes. Again, I'm not saying, we don't know really what she did, and I'm not saying to snap in some sort of really extreme way, but I would say he's at home with someone who, one-on-one attention of someone who cares for him and loves him, who he knows very well. He's around all of his stuff. He gets to watch his TV and do what he wants, and she takes him outside, and that's got to be way better care than he's going to be getting in some sort of institution where he's going to have people making barely a living wage assigned to take care of his needs. They're not going to sit with him. They're not going to hand him the soup and take it back and hand him the soup and take it back. Probably they're No. Oh God, this is, I, I promise this to be, maybe it will. Maybe I can't make that promise. That being said, after my brother was hospitalized, I mean, it was the criminal wing of the hospital in Denver general it quite frankly was a huge relief to my parents and I because we knew he was getting medication, he was getting meals, and he was actually not being abused by the woman who ha- had been living at his house and abusing him for four or five months. Was it a great place for him to be? I'm sure it wasn't. He doesn't say very much about it, but he definitely talked about, I don't know, at least one or two of the other people who were, who, who there was definitely violence that happened that when staff had to intervene and people were taken away to actual jail or whatever it was. But I have to say in the, in the big scheme of things, there are, at least at that time, it was absolutely a better situation for him to be in than this is different because that's not what Jacob was experiencing. I don't know if we're going to resolve too much of this. I just want to acknowledge again that I think the power and the uh, the film's accomplishment is being able to raise all these questions and put us in the position of really having to think through what do you do? Who is at fault? Who do we really think is uh, best off here? For me, I, I like the unequal triangle more and more because it's it's like the least bad choices still. It's not just this sometimes we go through with a film like this and it's like, oh, well, in hindsight, yes, all of these things line up and that person was clearly the, in the wrong and this and that. 
But here, it really was this unequal, but it's all problematic and people do their best. And sometimes that it all just still sucks. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I, I love the bleakness of the film. I, that I appreciate. Although it would have been nice if it, like something had happened to Paige that was also, she gotten kicked out of school. I don't know, something. Because she does end up basically fine. I mean, she did have to go through, people talk about a rape examination and that sort of thing as, as really a, a problematic experience. But anyway, go ahead. I, I want to jump in for a second because you're really solidifying something for me here. So often, you especially, but I will admit that I've been coming around to this mindset a bit more the more we have these conversations. When we look at a film, we look for a referendum because we have a clear view on what the morality of the film should be. And we want the film to have laid down that view of morality. And so if a film is too ambiguous in a case where maybe it feels like it shouldn't have been ambiguous, we find that to be problematic. And in this case, by not laying down a referendum, they're not doing the work for you. Now, sometimes we object to that, I think, because we would say, hey, there's a clear answer to this. Why didn't you lay down the answer that was negligent of you not to because someone might interpret it the other way. But here, by not laying down a clear answer, it it forces you to do exactly what we're doing here if you're going to be thoughtful about watching the film, which is think through all of these questions that it raises. And we just keep kind of going in circles. And, you know, I started off saying, oh, I love that everybody's perspective is sort of equally weighted and and no one's the villain. And then I switched to, no, wait a second. Oh my gosh, how... Page is terrible. This needs to be a film about how horrible Page is. Why? Why wasn't it? And now you're pulling me back around a little bit. Well, all right, maybe not. Maybe I can see her perspective more. And then the questions about the institution, right? Those are really important questions about what someone, I would say what someone who's facing mental illness might face. And also it's important questions about the caregivers of those facing mental illness because Janice's position I mean, Janice is taken out of the equation by the end of the film, but we have seen that Janice both wants to be there for Jacob, wants to be his sole caregiver, wants to offer everything to him. She's not always capable, maybe we would say, of towing that line completely, but gosh, nobody is. I mean, that's, it's a really hard thing she's being asked to do, and I think she's doing it, I thought, from what we saw fairly well. But it's also having really negative impacts on her life. Charles did not necessarily seem like... <laughs> the best choice for her, but whatever. She can't get out and do anything. She tells Paige that she just wants a little bit of time out of the house by herself. It's a struggle for her. And so would she have been better off if he had been in some sort of care where she was able to have her life and maybe still visit him or still see him, but not be the one providing sole care? Would he have been maybe better off because the people providing the care would have been professionals and wouldn't have been so emotionally tied, which whether that's a good or bad, I don't know, but they wouldn't have been so exhausted because she, as a sole caregiver, who's only there all the time and loves him to death and is devoting her life to this, she's, she's exhausted and she's going to snap because that's a difficult thing to do. So I don't know. It just raises all these good questions. And maybe that's what its power is in making us go in circles and not be able to lay down a referendum ourselves. Or go in triangles, as it were. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. I'm so glad you said that again. I was waiting that whole time to be able to drop that line. And then you came back (laughs) around to it. 
I was like, oh God, if I say it now, that happened like two minutes ago, it's not going to land at all. I agree with all that. I do think we should spend at least just a moment talking about the actual scene of the of Paige abusing him, because I do think that the film focused primarily on how upset and difficult it was for her. It was much more about her experience of it. And like you said, we did see him as being at best tolerant, at worst, really deeply uncomfortable. But we saw her preparing to do it. We saw her doing it. The camera was really focused on her. It was her crying and her like emotional experience. And I, I have to agree with you that if those genders were flipped and we were being presented with a film where what we saw was, well, we, I guess we did see this with I Spit on Your Grave with Matthew, who's developmentally disabled and he's raping Jennifer or as trying to rape her is really upset and problematic and we have this empathy for him, that gets really difficult. I don't, I very oddly, or maybe unusual for me, maybe it's again, it's a credit to Parker that, uh, or maybe it's a comment on me that I wasn't really upset with, with the film focusing on her experience. And maybe that's because he was so, Jacob was so basically detached throughout the film. I think if this had been the one experience where he was detached, that would be very problematic. But I think at most, the sort of most positive reaction we ever saw from him was the Connect Four. And he sort of had this, but he he has been... Oh, God, now I'm doing all kinds of problematic things. I, I just think it was a very interesting scene. I do think that we, we have the example of I Spent on Your Grave where Matthew, the genders are reversed, even though it's a totally, the details are totally different. But we have some empathy for the abuser, and it's not entirely problematic, although that is a really careful balance and delicate line to walk. And... I don't know if Parker executed it perfectly here, but it was at least done, I think, with intention and with thought. And I wouldn't object if someone found it somehow problematic, but I, I don't think it was careless. I'm, I'm wondering if us not knowing Jacob's reaction to that scene, well, maybe this isn't true. What I was going to say is I wonder if us not knowing his reaction is helpful in terms of us, again, not knowing what the right thing to do is. And because he in general is so hard to read for everyone in his life, that he can't communicate, he can't speak, that all of this is about what to do to him or for him. And everybody has his best intentions at heart, but nobody really knows what he wants. And so in a way, it mirrors that and puts us as the audience member in a place where we can't really draw a clear line about what happened or what didn't. So that might be helpful. So, so for me, that is a perfect moment. And if you want to jump back, you can. That's a perfect to, a moment to ask the question of, do we want to, or is there cause to believe that we should go meta with the film? Of Jacob, we are very much in Jacob's position, both literally and figuratively, literally in that the only times we ever get point of view shots, we are seeing the world, the diegesis of the film from Jacob's point of view. 
And then similarly to Jacob, we as viewers can't communicate back to the reality that's happening. We don't have a voice here either. All we can do is sort of watch this happen. And that's it. I, I mean, I think that there's, I just think that that's a very interesting piece. I don't know that, exactly what that might say, but. In that respect, I see what you're saying about us being Jacob, but I think we're also Paige. We're also trying to figure out what's best for this person without having a full understanding of his life. But I, okay, but I think that's it. I, okay, so here, bear with me. We've established how we as, as viewers empathize with Paige. We've established how we as viewers empathize with Janice. Yes. And that, by putting us in that position with Jacob, we now have his perspective too. So we do have empathy from all three sides, even for someone who that's really our only way to access his perspective. So we get the three sides. Because how else are you going to establish empathy for... And I, I find that really compelling because then we are just like... If we're in Jacob's position, just like you said, we're going back and forth. We're trying to understand this all. We are really in his shoes. And, and just watching this all happen, some of it we understand, some of it we don't. We don't really know how to resolve all this. That's to me, is a really powerful thing to say. Here is someone who, here is someone who arguably would be the hardest for us to step into their shoes, and he's been able to accomplish that. Are you saying in the assault scene, or are you saying throughout in general throughout, throughout the film with the point of views and that sort of thing? Yes, throughout the film, and structurally, with that meta piece. So Because then we triangulate. We have all three sides. Yes, but I keep coming back to the assault scene and why in particular we would be left out of his perspective in that scene because his perspective in that scene seems to be the most important perspective. I don't know how to say this. If it's a story about Jacob, if Jacob isn't just a pawn, then we need to know how he feels. I understand maybe us being confused about how he feels because we're meant to be sitting in the shoes of Janice, or at least in that, in that scene, Paige. And so we're trying to do what's best for him and we don't really know. Like if they told us he's horrified in this scene, might we respond differently? But gosh, then they kind of did. With the scratch, they did. But then like you said, if we do that, then we have a, a much clearer, then that clarifies who's good and who's evil in the Janice-Page divide. And the film needs to not provide that clarity we do at least know that, that Jacob will respond in a way that disrupts, that he, he can speak for himself, so to speak, in that when he doesn't want to be touched or when something spills on him or when he really doesn't want to do something, he will, he'll react, he'll communicate in the ways that he will communicate. And he doesn't, I mean, I don't want to get into the victim blaming. I know that's a real delicate line to walk too, but I'm not trying to say, oh, he should have fought back harder or he should have fought back or that exonerates her or anything. But, but we have seen multiple times that he can react strongly to, to demonstrate to people around him that I don't want to participate in this or this is problematic for me. And he doesn't do that. We do at least know that. That's a decent argument. <laughs> I know, yeah, I just, I don't know. It gets so tricky, and I guess that's 
part of the point of what the film is trying to accomplish, I think, that I, because I was just thinking, okay, but at the end, which is technically the beginning, when, I mean, the beginning, which is the end, right, when he's getting pulled off into the institution, he clearly does not want to go. Sure. And so I was wondering, but we should also then highlight the fact that there is a point in the film where they make it clear to us that he can understand couple times they make it clear to us that you can understand although maybe they muddy that with the point of view shots that are thoroughly confusing point of view shots that i assumed were from jacob's perspective don't make sense and they're kind of dream sequency and people switch out for other people and so it's unclear really what he is perceiving if those are if he's really there or not i don't know and maybe that's the point maybe he's only kind of there but if he was complicit he was complicit in achieving something he didn't want which would be even more aligned with the construction of the film as unequal but unresolvable. And in particular, that scene where he does have this sort of sexualized fantasy version of Page in the Park, we come back around to that same scene, but from an external objective point of view and then her point of view, where that doesn't happen, but it does demonstrate to us to us that he had some sexual interest in her. And that's further reinforced by the idea that by when he gropes her. So again, we, if you, I'm speaking for you out of order, Laura, please let me know. But we are not saying that if you have once indicated sexual interest in someone, you've given away your consent or your ability to, to say no to anything ever. But for the sake of the film, I think we do have data points that show us Jacob was at least at times, at best, had sexual interest in Paige and at worst was not really into it, but not so against it that he would push her away or shrug her off or whatever. Now I'm coming around to wonder if that makes it worse. Okay. Well, first of all, my first thought when you were saying that was, well, yeah, but if he's 12, essentially, it doesn't matter if he has sexual interest in her, he can't consent. That's not... But then do we get to... But then do we get to this, which, you know, Matt and Glenda used to, at least Glenda used to talk about was, so if you have a developmental disability, are you just never get to have sex because you can't ever consent? Do you never get to have any sexual pleasure? That's kind of fucked up. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, wait. Can I can I go to the next thing I was yes. going to say? And, and that's right. At some point, we got to move forward. I think we've established. But, okay, what I was going to say that actually seems relevant to what you were just saying there, not the consent stuff, was that if let's say he liked it, that almost makes it worse because she wasn't doing it. This was not a sexual exchange for the two of them. This was something she was doing to get him committed. We had clear indications, I think, that he did not want to be committed. So if, she, if he liked it and she got him to agree, which I don't even think this is exactly what happened, but whatever, she got him to let her do this because he enjoyed it and then took that and made something happen to him that he clearly did not want to happen, that's probably worse. I mean, it's bad for its own sake if he didn't enjoy it. If he did enjoy it, it's bad for a different sake. Or maybe it's bad for the different sake in either case, right? I guess that would be it. It's bad for the different sake in either case, but it seems manipulative also if he did like it. In that case, 
it becomes more problematic for me that the, that the film does not punish Paige in some way, because that would mean that mom is inadvertently complicit in her downfall. Jacob is inadvertently complicit in his downfall and Paige doesn't have a downfall. Paige gets to go to ladies night with her friends. I definitely, I did feel that was the only twinge I felt of distaste toward Paige was when she was walking out of school with her friends and they're all just giving her attention in a way that felt like she was a little bit of a hero. And I didn't, I mean, she obviously didn't, she didn't go through what they thought she went through and that was a bit troubling, but just this idea that she's moving on with her life. Okay. Well, took care of that problem. Everything is solved now. I'm going to go off and live my life and go to grad school and be a wonderful angel because, you know, I've, I've fixed it. Mom's dead. Jacob got dragged away to some place he doesn't want to go. And my work here is done. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now I want to go back. I want to say Paige is the villain. Yes, but she's only like the long side of the triangle of the villain, not the whole villain. Clearly, if it takes us two hours to <laughs> go in triangles and parse this out. All right, I, can we move on? I have a couple other yeah. things I want to say. Okay, I think this makes, this makes sense in terms of order. First, so this is the third in our series of Zach Parker films, In Exchange being his first, Quench being his second. And I have to say that this is leaps and bounds a superior film to either of those. And that was true, not just in the production value, which was also like order of magnitude better. The acting was fantastic, particularly uh, Janice. Actually, all of them. Well, certainly Janice and, and Paige were, I thought, just excellent. And... This was also for me a really solid use of color symbolism. And I appreciated that as well, where page was aligned with green and that was associated with nature and Janice was aligned with red and that was associated with blood and Jacob was aligned with blue and that was associated with institutions, particularly cops and the scrubs of the film. And that was just played out throughout the film. And there were a couple really great moments where when Paige first comes into the house to interview for the job, mom, who's associated with red Janice sits in her like rocker chair and there's a vertically striped various blues blanket behind her. So she's like symbolically caged in by Jacob. I mean, that is, it's, it's just subtle and it's clear. And then the final scene is, we get the exterior shot of Paige's house and it is a red brick house with green shutters, which is very much the red of mom of Janice and the green of Paige. It's the setting where they collide. Like those little pieces, they're so simple, but for me, they were like so well done without being totally overwrought. I just, it was those little things. I don't remember seeing those at all in his first two films And I just, whatever, that for me is a very, uh, I love seeing that sort of reinforcement at whatever level, setting, color, coding, costume, all that kind of stuff, props, whatever. Maybe that's it. 
Oh, and then the other thing in comparison to his first two films, this was a film about women. <laughs> I was just going to say that, but yeah, the first films were very much, not only they were male-centric, but I think they also, to me, had a very low level of empathy or understanding for anyone who's in any sort of marginalized position. I took Quench, I guess, worse than you did, but I found that to be a really simplistic slash problematic interpretation of people with presumably HIV. And it just, it felt like it was treating it as a prop rather than as an actual lived experience. And the second one we saw, which was his first film, which was In Exchange, In Exchange yes. was very much just a, a story about college-aged men and very much left out the perspective of any of the women in the story. They were really neglected and I think seen as inconsequential to the real story about the real characters. And so this was an interesting switch because now we have all of these characters. Yes, two of them are women. One of them has a disability. And it was very much a film about really digging into the perspectives of each of these characters. And it wasn't just a, a superficial what both of the first two films felt like, it felt like they were coming from the perspective of someone who had a lot of privilege in society and who could other people like women or people with HIV for the sake of a film. And even, even to the point where with the women in, in exchange, I don't think the film noticed it was othering them. And with people with HIV, I don't think it was the film didn't perceive it as problematic. I think it was able to be a punchline like, Ooh, that's a scary thing which again, just really bothered me watching that film because it completely lacked empathy for anyone I think who was going through that situation. And, and to me, it felt like it, the film was shot from the perspective of someone who could look at that not as a real affliction that real people faced, but as something to be, I, I want to use like the opposite of glorified, vilified, I guess, right? Something that could just be thrown out there as like some spooky thing. You might want to watch this crazy extreme movie about. And this was exactly the opposite in that it was all about nuances of perspectives and not the sort of dominant privileged perspective in any case. And that's fascinating that you would make a switch like that. Yes. 180 degree switch. The women in the first two films were absolutely props. They were trophies. They were foils. They were exposition, but they were, they were props. They were just utilitarian, just no depth, no care, no regard no particular influence on anything on the plot. And in this, as you pointed out, it was absolutely about, about the women. And even further to what you're, add on to what you're saying, Laura, the, the man who is, or very much could be a prop, Jacob, because he doesn't speak. For me, that, that even more is a, is a credit to using the point of view shots and putting us as viewer in his position. So even though he's uncommunicative and could be reduced to a trophy or just a prop or just a foil character, we still have an understanding of his perspective and have empathy for him, even though that perspective is a really difficult one to convey because of his lack of communication and his developmental disability or his, his issues with perception or processing reality where people may switch places and there's not really a lot of clarity. So he was still able to develop that, that level of nuance and depth with that character where, I mean, that's really a challenge. 
And so he didn't just flip-flop of, okay, now we're focusing on the women and the man is now the lamp or the prop in, in all of this. He was really able to, uh, to accomplish that with all three and all three very different characters. I see why we loved this film and wanted to, were motivated enough to revisit all of these. Absolutely. And we have to, we have to dig in at least for a second to the story about the cow. Because it was so so drawn out. And maybe the point was just, let's insert a story here that's going to be horrifying and is going to traumatize Jacob and and show that Charles doesn't notice. But I think given everything that you've pointed out, and I think you did a great job of laying that out with all of the symbolism and all the care that was placed into things like color and things like, you know, specific scenes that really highlighted the emotional dynamic between the characters. I think there has to be more to that story than just insert placeholder horrific story here. And so we we have a story about an injured animal that is repeatedly tried to be put out of its misery ineffectively. And so we've got someone who's trying to do the best for the animal that they can. Presumably they're trying to help and yet it just keeps getting worse and keeps getting worse and keeps getting worse. And that person is a agent of an institution. I'm good with that. Why, how come he turned over the truck? Did we get a reason? What caused the actual accident? Not that I remember. That would be the only. But there were no other animals in the film. There were no other. I'm happy with. Uh, he, he, his one coloring book picture was a bear, but I'm fine with your explanation. Or I think it was worth saying. So is Jacob the cow. And he's just suffering through people's attempts to help the cow never dies does it does this doesn't the story end no the story ends before the cow dies because he's like and then it got even worse and that's when it finally gets cut off yeah i could see that i like as uh, yeah i like jacob's a cow as much as i don't think we're really trying to put jacob out of his misery but we're trying to resolve a, a situation that doesn't yeah i'm gonna throw my quick grade on the film if you're okay with that laura I'm going to go ahead and give it an A, particularly because one of our primary questions for the film is how is empathy directed and how is it encouraged or discouraged or developed? And I think the film was as much of a study in empathy as really any film can be. And in terms of some of the other factors that we look at, the representation, it's still all white. But that for me was not not really the, I don't want to excuse that or dismiss diversity as important, but in this case, it, it, it wasn't to the point where I thought it took away from the film. And, oh, and there was essentially no gratuity at all. I think everything in the film was, was essentially justified. And the emotional experience reflected it. I, as we've talked about, my emotional experience was with, different people and it all came together that's i think enough i agree overall with everything you've said there i would throw in i'm tempted to give some sort of caveat about the sexual assault again and just the fact that i don't know i i'm not entirely settled on how i feel about even our interpretation of it you know even the fact that we're willing to give it these sort of caveats that 
are inherently problematic. Like, well, maybe he was all right with it. Maybe he kind of liked it. We don't really know. You know, th there's just something going on there that isn't sitting quite right with me, but I'm still going to give it an A because I do think that we talk a lot about the audience's experience in going through a scene like that. And like you said, there's nothing gratuitous. Those scenes were painful for us. So we don't really know how he felt. And I don't even know how I feel about my assessment of how he felt about it. But I will say that it was painful to watch. And there was never any, any point in there where you would worry, for example, like you've referenced before, Roger Ebert's comment on I Spit on Your Grave, that someone might be watching this and kind of cheering on the rapists or feeling some sort of exhilaration from the rape. There's nothing in the assault that's presented in this that would in any way lead someone to feel pleasure in watching that. I mean, it's, it's just all bad. And so I think even my, my hesitancy somehow around that, notwithstanding, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in A particularly for that reason, because there was you can't, you could not describe any of that as enticing. You made this argument, Laura, and, and I agree with it in this case in particular. It's, this is a paper, if this were a paper, I'd give it an A and write these as notes, as comments, and, and leave it at that. I agree. Okay. And that concludes our discussion of Scalene. We hope you listened and enjoyed it this far. Uh, we knew we were, we were digging into a lot with this film and, uh, I think that's exactly what we got. Our next episode is going to be his most recent film, which is Proxy. And it will likely be as involved of a discussion as this one. And in the meantime, we appreciate your listening. And horror films are our collective nightmares. Were you trying to do a lot better with the likes? Because that seemed like you didn't say like very much. I've been trying to do a lot better just in life with the likes. <laughs> I know oh. what I sound like. And I don't understand why anyone would ever have a conversation with me ever. Before we go there, wait, wait, what, read me the tagline again. The truth is just a point of view. It's funny because, so this, I'm just going to throw this out there. You don't have to put this in the podcast, but I'm going to throw this out there just because it's something I've, think about a lot in the context of my environment and society class in particular, that we have to walk this really interesting line as sociologists who are discussing or pushing for, I guess, the, the recognition of subjectivity and a recognition of multiple perspectives. And particularly in places where we're looking for, how do I say this? The dominant perspectives are the perspectives that come from people that have a lot of power. And so it's very important to point out that there are alternate versions of truth and reality that come from perspectives that just weren't elevated to the point of being able to be the loudest message in the room. And so understanding the importance of subjectivity and the importance of just that everything is meaning and we come together as a collective to do our best to figure out what reality is, but reality is inherently subjective. And also realizing that there are objective things happening in this world. And when you go too far down this subjectivity road, you can end up in a place where subjectivity itself becomes incapacitating in being able to lay any sort of moral referendum down or make any sort of progress or say anything is good or bad or 
you know, what should happen. I mean, you could hear those, that tagline from that film coming out of Trump's mouth, right? And in a very problematic way, like, no, we know what, you know, there is a reality here and you're just fabricating something for your own power purpose, or I guess using your power to fabricate something for your own, in your own interest. And we need to be able to say, no, that's a problem. And so I just, I think that's an interesting line that I always try to walk with my students of telling them that I want them to be aware of subjectivity and, and why it's important to realize that, you know, meaning is socially constructed and at the same time still feel empowered to determine what you think the objective truth is and to proceed as though that's the case, right? To, to, to work for a world that aligns with whatever vision of objective reality you think it should have and, you know, based on the facts as you see them, that, that truth, I guess truth exists and is subjective at the same time. That's what I want to say. I'm so glad you said that. That maps very nicely as the individual version of our, the micro version of our macro level, most interesting question in the world of what are the limits of cultural relativism? At what point do you, do you need to step in or does the global community or whoever it is need to step in and say to our culture, we respect your differences. However, what you're doing is wrong. And this is absolutely the individual version of like, yes, there's subjectivity and we can't ever have full inner subjectivity, philosophically speaking, but there needs to be a point, like you said, where sowing doubt can be used as a, can be weaponized. And, and that's a really tricky question because and this brings us back to that question of intentions of it can be really problematic when you're when you think you're right and you're well intentioned and you still go into a circumstance and you could wreak havoc but you may also wreak havoc by not and that walking that line is absolutely one of the most interesting questions because i guess because you're walking a line between wrecking havoc on either side, <laughs> which brings me to one of my favorite words that I haven't thought of in a long time, which is you are a funambulist of havoc. Uh, I've never heard that word before. Uh, funambulist is a tightrope walker. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Awesome. I'm glad you yeah, I, I don't know if I did. I still start sentences like I just did three or four times. Like I said, that's relatively easy to edit out. I think it's so funny that I should probably upload another raw episode for you and you can listen to see if that was a one-time thing or if you're like, no, I don't want to do that. I was traumatized. (laughs) I was traumatized. I used to think I had interesting things to say and then I thought, oh gosh, I don't. You do have interesting, or you absolutely have interesting things to say. It's just, I think for all of us, but surely... For people of all kinds, including women, there's sociolinguistic research to back that up, that they very often are encouraged to qualify and to reframe their speech so as to not be, quote unquote, too assertive or too imposing because of all sorts of biases and backlash that women experience that men don't. I don't have any of that excuse of lack of privilege. I just (laughs) think with my mouth (laughs) for better for worse so not excuse not excuse justification not excuse sorry
Well, you sounded fine. <laughs> I, I should say for if you, this is going in the outtakes anywhere that uh, I awfully listened to an episode that Marshall had not edited. And I didn't know what Marshall did when he would say he was editing these episodes and it was taking forever. <laughs> I had no idea what he was doing other than not actually doing it. But now I know what he is doing. He was taking out every second word that I said that was some sort of bizarre filler word that was not helpful at all, apparently, because when I listened to an unedited episode, I just wanted to vomit. <laughs> Well, what I've been doing way better. I think in the last in the several days since that happened, I've been trying really, really, really hard when I talk to people to practice not sounding like an idiot. And I think it's been going well. I hope. That's great. Good. I did better. I think I did better. So those of you who are listening, it's not just hopefully that Marshall edited out every single <laughs> <laughs> qualifier or um or like that I said. I think I actually have less of them. It, it sounded like it to me. So for whatever that's worth. Thank you. That's helpful. Well, you sounded great in that episode. So you, you don't have anywhere near as bad of a problem as I do, based on my sample size of one. <laughs> right? My problem is just different. Like I said, my problem is I, it takes me four tries to start a sentence. But once I get moving, I can sometimes do okay. And that just is easier because I could just crop that off the beginning rather than trying to pick out likes, which is, or whatever, which is just logistically a bit more challenging. I love diving into horror, particularly with uh, with my lovely cook. I'm not gonna say that. I liked <laughs> And I really enjoy the fact that horror films in particular can produce the kind of conversations that this episode, I still can't say that. Is it comprised or consists of? Comprised is like the stuff that all right, let me just say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I, I believe her. Dexter. Sorry. Dexter. Okay. I believe her. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.